I'm Ruth Sturkey and welcome to Money Expresso, no froth conversations exploring money and life. I know from my experience as a financial planner that we humans are often inhibited when it comes to talking about money. Many of us struggle to see that money is really just a means to an end and that the decisions we make around money can change not only our life, but the life of others as well. I'm going to be speaking with guests from a variety of backgrounds and asking them to share their personal story and the influence money has had along the way. I'm also going to be delving into some of those tricky money and life questions that I've seen my clients wrestle with over the years. My hope is that the shared experience of my guests will help you think maybe differently about money and ultimately make better money and life decisions. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Money Expresso. Now, as I say in the intro, one of the reasons for the existence of Money Expresso is to hear people's money stories and to help others make better money decisions. But I also want to have conversations to challenge the status quo and to change people's perceptions and beliefs, not just around money, but the industries that have grown up around wealth and taxation. This is an episode that does just that. So my guest today is a woman I've admired for a number of years who is doing some groundbreaking work in the wealth world. That woman is Stephanie Brobby, founder of the Good Ancestor Movement. Now, Stephanie is a Londoner, born and bred, and she qualified as a private wealth lawyer in 2011 and worked for a decade advising UK and international clients on a broad range of matters concerning their wealth. Her expertise was recognised with a multitude of accolades from leading organisations that identify the movers and shakers in the wealth and legal professions. And perhaps more importantly, from my perspective at least, was loved by the clients that I referred to her over the years. Now, as Stephanie worked through that decade, as I understand it, she became increasingly moved by what she saw as the inequality in the distribution of wealth, which led to her launch of the Good Ancestor Movement in September 2021. Now, the Good Ancestor Movement is a social purpose business which exists to disrupt the mainstream wealth advisory industry by challenging ideas around excessive wealth accumulation and tax minimization. I'm sure Stephanie will tell us more. Stephanie is also a dedicated social sector leader and has served as a trustee for a number of youth charities, as well as the Funding Network, a charity which hosts lives crowdfunding events for not-for-profits, organising and pursuing social change. She's also on the advisory group for Make My Money Matter, a new people-powered initiative co-founded by Richard Curtis, which is working to shift the three trillion pound in UK pensions into sustainable investments. Stephanie, we've spoken about this for a long time now, and I'm just so excited to welcome you to Money Expresso today. Thank you so much, Ruth. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, it's brilliant to have you. And I wonder whether we could kick off with you just giving us a nutshell of your journey from um, um, growing up to founding the Good Ancestor Movement? Sure. Um, well, I was born in London to uh, parents who were Ghanaian immigrants. Um, they came here in the 80s um, and I was born here along with my three siblings. Um, and I grew up in a, a really lovely working class community in Shepherd's Bush. I spent the first 12 years of my life um, growing up on an estate. I grew up in social housing. Um, and then when I was about 12, we, we moved to another part of, 
of the borough and um, you know lived in a, another flat um, and it was that flat was sort of in a in a much nicer area and that was my first kind of introduction to how the other half live mm. um, notwithstanding that I was still in sort of social housing um, I had an amazing time at school I went to a brilliant comprehensive school in uh, Acton in West London um, wanted to study law started out um, wanting to become a human rights lawyer um, was uh, had a very keen interest in justice and civil liberties um, so I ended up studying law at Cardiff University and um, at the end of my degree, I, I thought perhaps I wouldn't become a lawyer, actually. And I was more concerned about going, traveling overseas. And I was determined to make it to South America, which I did um, eventually. And um, But I ended up getting a training contract at Goodman Derrick, which is where I ended up training. And um, Goodman Derrick is a full service commercial law firm. But I ended up qualifying into the private client team. Uh, because I was just, I found myself fascinated by the complexity of human relationships, which, um, you know, ultimately, you know, private wealth, we, we end up advising on tax and um, asset protection and various things relating to people's private wealth. But the thing that really drew me in was um, the complexity of, of human relationships to one another you know, to ourselves and, and, you know, to our resources. Um, and I enjoyed that very much. I, you know, had some fabulous colleagues and I just loved developing my practice and um, was always really interested in philanthropy. And I think that was probably my uh, deep kind of passion for justice and, you know, social change was always there in the background. And to some extent, I tried to sort of integrate it into my professional practice, but mostly ended up sitting on boards and getting involved in stuff outside work. Um, and, um, you know, I, I was on an amazing trajectory, as you know, and, you know, loved uh, my clients and developed some fantastic relationships. But there was always something in the background that was kind of niggling at me and, you know, an itch that I needed to scratch. And um, it sort of, you know, my thinking around wealth started to change and, the way I describe it is that I you know, gradually became more politicized around issues of wealth inequality and income inequality. And, you know, I think being positioned in the city as, as I was as a, as a lawyer really cocooned me from, you know, a lot of the day to day injustices that, that people face. And I, when I started to interrogate these, um, it, it really sort of shifted me into another um, phase of my career really and, and, and my thoughts generally on, on wealth and society and um, those deliberations and thoughts were sort of you know I, I ended up being on the verge of you know becoming a being invited to become a partner really at, you know at, at the firm and um, you know that was always my um, trajectory and um, one day I think it was New Year's Eve in 2019 um, a friend of mine told me that there were more food banks than branches of McDonald's in the UK. Um, and that was the, the big catalyst for me. And, and um, I ended up kind of obsessing over some thoughts around um, the, the, the largest intergenerational wealth transfer in human history, which is happening over the next couple of decades. It's known as the Great Wealth Transfer and something like 70 trillion US dollars 
changing hands between baby boomers and millennials globally. Um, and I thought, what an incredible opportunity to, um, to harness the power of such a great uh, wealth transfer and put it to good use in the world. Um, and I came up with the concept of the Good Ancestor Movement, which is supporting kind of um, social justice focused uh, wealth holders with radical wealth redistribution. Wow, what a journey. And uh, I love that image that you painted of us coming to that fork in the road where you could have continued on the trajectory that you were on to become a partner and who could have blamed you. But there was obviously this very deep seated, deep seated sense of a need to do something different. And it's funny, isn't it? It's almost like once we learn of these kind of inconvenient truths, they're very difficult to keep down, aren't they? And they keep bubbling, keep bubbling up. Now, I'd love to come back and talk a little bit more about the work you're going to be doing with the Good Ancestor Movement. But if you don't mind, Steph, I'd love to just take you back to growing up in, in Shepherd's Bush. And um, it's an area of London that uh, I think I've told you this before, that um, I trained as a nurse and I trained um, um, between St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington and King Charles on, on Ladbroke Grove, so very much on the edge of the Shepherd's Bush area. And, and uh, that was in the 80s, I'm afraid to say. And, um, and so I have a little bit of a insight into what the, the world was like uh, around that area in those days. But I'd love to understand um, for you, what was your earliest memory of money growing up um, with your family? Yeah, money was, uh, uh, you know, it, it, money was tight. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was my earliest memory, you know, really that we was just, a, you know, an awareness that we had to be careful and, you know, um, we had to make our pounds stretch and we'd, you know, go around to different shops to make sure we get the best bargains for certain things. And, um, you know, my parents always taught me about the importance of saving and um, it was a piggy bank in my um, my bedroom that I shared with my sister that, you know, we'd put our coppers in. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just a, a general awareness of the need to um, be sensible with money and be careful and, um, to you know make sure that you're not overspending and um that you you snap up a bargain when you can um you know I grew up in a it was quite a diverse community um Shepherds Bush and you know a mixture a mixed demographic but um you know I did grow up kind of in a in a very working class uh section of, of the borough and um you know was aware that people were struggling mm, yeah and in terms of you know, growing up knowing money was tight. Um, that, does that influence the way that you think about money these days? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been it's been quite an interesting journey because obviously I've, you know, I ended up in a profession which, uh, you know, I was very lucky to you know earn a good living, and it kind of dramatically uh, it was a dramatic change from you know what uh, my life was like. Like growing up, um, I'm still very aware. I think it. I think it really uh, shaped my thinking and my awareness in terms of uh, like stewardship and making sure that you know you don't waste money, you don't spend mm. frivolously, and um, you know the, the need to budget very carefully. And um, I, but I also think it it can breed a, a sense of scarcity, which 
society is already, um, you know, our whole economy is modelled, you know, the market is all, it's all about scarcity, isn't it? And, and that can actually be very unhealthy. And so the, the fear of lack and the fear mm. of not having enough. And um, uh, I think that can lead to some, you know, problematic spending ha- habits and attitudes. And um, I think for a while I was on a bit of a pendulum, actually, uh, for kind of feeling really worried about money, not wanting to spend, and then, you know, being a lot more frivolous and, you know, mm. um, spending lots of disposable income. Um, but it, it has made me become more intentional, I would say, about the way I approach money and um, review my own relationship to, to money. Yeah, and and I think I was, I remember myself having um, my my grandma was was very working class, and I remember when I started to earn a little bit of money, feeling almost like a sense of guilt that I had money that I could go and blow on going out to dinner or something. And I knew my grandma, you know, struggled on a basic state pension. Oh, I don't know, but she didn't struggle. I'm using that word wrongly. She, she lived on it and it was okay. But it took me a while, I think, to disconnect from my current circumstances, the circumstances I kind of grew up with. So you're right, it's, it is a matter of trying to identify some of the beliefs that, that maybe serve us or maybe don't serve us anymore. But, um, what, what was your first job, Stephanie? I mean, I know obviously you, um, you know, went to union and then qualified as a lawyer. But did did you have a kind of job growing up? Yeah, I um, I had a couple of jobs, so I can't, I can't actually remember. But I must have been about fifteen or sixteen when I I started feeding cats for some of my neighbours um, in the street where I grew up in in, in Hammersmith, and um, that was really fun. And then I I actually applied for a job when I was 17 I remember I was in in sick form and applied for a job at white stuff the retail clothing retailer Mm. um and got the job and that was you know that was my first sort of you know proper Saturday job and I loved it um it was really fun and actually I feel like everyone should do retail (laughs) you know at least once in your in in your life because it, it teaches you so much you know it forces you to to develop your communication skills and you know you've got to approach people that you don't know and um you you know it's used to be pretty good for your mental arithmetic and um stock keeping and just working with lots of different people and um I really loved it and I had friends that worked on the same street it was Turnham Green Terrace in Chiswick Mm -hmm. and I had a couple of friends um that worked on the same street and so sometimes we'd have lunch and um just I have really fond memories of that time actually because it's when you know when you're 17 you don't have any responsibilities apart from you know doing your exams and and what have you but um so I had a whale of a time just not quite sure what I spent all that money on probably lunches and going out and things but um it was really good fun and so you um left retail it it didn't lure you in and you went to to Cardiff university was that your first time kind of having to manage your own money and uh live on a budget yes it was um it it was actually that was a time of sort of real anxiety for me because of course you you got your I think I I must have had part of my tuition paid and then I had um you know took out a student loan like you know most people 
And um, I remember being quite terrified when this lump sum <laughs> arrived in my bank account and thinking, I need to manage this for the, you know, the whole term. And um, there was there were people that, you know, on my corridor, there was one girl in particular who'd gone out the, the minute she got her student loan and she bought a TV and bought various gadgets for her room. And I was just so shocked because I just I think I was that was a real time of scarcity for me and, you know, really um really feeling fearful about you know getting to the end of term and not having enough so I was quite I remember being quite stingy and um you know we we had a big Tesco extra um near our campus and you know I remember my first shot was basically full of you know Tesco value everything because I was just terrified of parting money with you know to buy you know really nice food and things and yeah I you know I sort of learned along the way that you know I, I could 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 buy nice things and you know budget in a way that um didn't mean that I had to you know completely restrict myself to a certain type of brand or food and was the but was that budgeting something that was just instinctive for you or was it something that your parents had instilled or in, were there any kind of disciplines or stories that you recall mom and dad telling you about that were helpful in this transition um, well, I think I think it was just I never did any sort of formal, you know, budgeting um, to that point, you know, with my parents. But we, we there was just always a general understanding that you mustn't go beyond your means and yeah. you must live within your means. And and if it means not doing certain things, well, tough, you know, you've, yeah. Um, don't don't overstretch yourself. So, yeah. Um, it's, it, it, it's 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 exactly that isn't it you know I know and I think if you can kind of foster that um understanding from an early age it does stand you in in good stead yeah. and as you obviously as you say you kind of um went to uni and then you went to work at Goodman Derrick in the private client department and probably suddenly started to you know have some have some money which is is always a nice a nice realization were there any particular habits or disciplines that you put into place that enabled you, you know, really to do what you're doing now, step away from what might have seen a kind of clear trajectory to give you the confidence to branch out on your own? Yeah, I mean, it's when I first started at Goodman Derek, I mean, I just remember that first paycheck and thinking, I was sort of looking over my shoulder thinking, do I really deserve this, this paycheck? What have I done? It's yeah. such a strange feeling when this money, you know, lands in your account. But I did from the beginning, you know, I always paid into my pension. Um, I've always, I think I've always had this, you know, irrational fear of being old and, and you know, not having enough money. And so, mm. you know, that was, that's always been a particular pain point for me. So I was very keen to pay into my pension as soon as possible. Um, and then, you know, I always, I always took the view that it was better to save something, you know, even if I, you know, aspired to save, you know, a larger amount, that it was better to just, you know, save what I could really yeah. and just be consistent about it. So I wasn't particularly rigorous at the beginning of my career and I did let myself sort of, you know, in, enjoy um, the benefits of, you know, my new professional career and, and that sort of thing. But as I as I progressed and I started to um, get serious about the things that I wanted in life, like you know the main main thing was um, getting on the property ladder and mm-hmm. you know, buying my first home. 
um, that's when I became really focused and really quite disciplined and um, about what I spent and um, and all my budgeting. Yeah. What's been your most successful investment that isn't necessarily related to money? Um, I would say um, my most successful investment has been in myself, really. Um, I have invested a lot of time in things like coaching um, and also therapy. Mm-hmm. And those things have helped me to understand myself and understand my history and why I behave the way I do and you know what my drivers are and um and how you know what my values are and yeah. how I live in alignment with those values or, or try to live in alignment with with those values and um I think you know it's obviously an enormous privilege to be able to do those things but for me you know that's what makes life living and I've always had a very strong um, desire to live a really purposeful life and you know I was never never fussed about job titles or you know any, anything like that I just I wanted to enjoy my work and my life and my relationships and really to do that you need I think um, you know a level of introspection and understanding um, of your your own story and mm. so I have heavily invested in um, in that in, in my life and that has been arguably you know the best investment I've ever made I can understand why definitely and it, and the word purpose I think is um it's one of those words that's really banded around these days isn't it is that you know people are asked about what's their purpose or their passion and I I often think it is quite difficult for people to uncover what that is without some assistance and indeed maybe some people don't actually feel a passion and purpose as, as strongly as others. What, what would you say would be your driving purpose? Well, I, um, I, one of the, the, for anyone who's stuck on trying to figure out purpose and thinking about, um, you know, why they're doing what they're doing or, you know, anything like that. I read a book called Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Mm-hmm. And that was really, you know, on top of all the coaching work I did, it was, it was a really powerful um, book and some of the ideas just really focused me on, on getting to know my why. And I, th- I think what, I think my why is that I cr- provide um, and create safe spaces for, you know, individuals so that they can make powerful and courageous choices. Um, and that I would say, you know, applies across my work, but also my, personal life and you know I the way I approach my friendships and my family relationships I'm always kind of you know even at work with colleagues you know I'm, I've always been sort of this vault in a way that, that that knows how to create a safe space for people um so that they can you know think about what it is that they need or want and kind of articulate that and then go out and have the courage to to, to do that so um that that's I mean it's very broad but it, it's definitely something that um, I regard as my my why. Yeah, no, and th- and that's a real gift, I think, to be able to to present to somebody that that's that safe space because it rarely exists. Mm. I, I kind of think around that as well. I I know you, you've got some very kind of developed thoughts around the subject of philanthropy, and I think philanthropy means different things to different people. But I'd love to hear 
maybe how you used to under, understand it and how you understand it now or kind of what that evolution has been? Yeah, I think I am, um, you know, I was someone who was very enamored by philanthropy and I, I think that stems from my awareness of social justice issues and, you know, my mum, bless her, she, she <laughs> sent me down to a soup kitchen when I was about eight um, to, because she always wanted to make sure that we knew that you know, just how fortunate we were, A, to be in this country, to have the benefits of, you know, free healthcare at the point of use and mm. brilliant education. Um, and, you know, even though money was tight and, you know, we, we um, struggled for many years, that there were always, you know, people that were far worse off than we were. So that something that really shaped me and I carried that with me into my professional life. And I guess philanthropy was a natural, or being involved having some proximity to the philanthropic world and philanthropic communities um, was some outlet for that. Mm. Um, and I, I suppose to my mind, um, in the early stages of my career, it was just a, an understanding that, of, of people that wanted to do good in the world and mm -hmm. um, you know, typically with their resources, their financial resources, you know, but also their time and their networks um, and people that desired to see to solve complex problems and um, to see human flourishing and, um, you know, a thriving planet. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I, I don't know if I talked about earlier about becoming essentially politicized around issues of wealth inequality and, you know, obviously climate change, the mm. most pressing challenge of our time, um, arguably, and, um, you know, began to understand my position, um, you know, in so far as private wealth um, is concerned as an advisor and, you know, realized that, you know, philanthropy is, is really about trying to solve complex problems and, um, you know, often uh, injustices, social and economic injustices that are faced by people all around the world. But I suppose I, over a period of time, I, I had to take a step back and, and really understand the bigger picture here. And, and I guess where I landed was that actually we, we live in an economic system which enables certain people to accumulate vast amounts of wealth. Um, and, you know, often that wealth is accumulated through extraction, either through, you know, natural resource, extracting natural resources um, or you know, exploitative labour practices or a combination of the two. And, and then often people that have been able to accumulate wealth in that way will then um, set about giving a proportion of their wealth or you know, income and redistributing it to causes which um, you know, particularly align with their values or they, they feel are appropriate. Um, and... I suppose I began, as I began to interrogate this, I, I started to see some holes in philanthropy and actually um, that it, it can be quite problematic, you know, as a, as a concept, as a product of a system which enables some people to be at the top of the economic system and others to be marginalised and excluded and disenfranchised from it. Um, but also in, in the way that philanthropy can operate sometimes, I, I think that there can be a, a huge problem with philanthropy and philanthropic practice reinforcing the power dynamics between powerful and wealthy people in society and, and those, you know, who 
are the, often the grantees, the people that are receiving their um, resources to pursue social change. Um, there, there is a dynamic there quite mm. often. And um, I think where I've landed really is that we need to see a, a shift in, in the way that we, we treat redistribution. And um, there needs to be a kind of relin- relinquishing of, of control on the part of philanthropists and, and yeah. really um, an ability to shift resources to um, brilliant grassroots leaders and activists and people who, you know, often in the global south, but, but also here, uh, you know, in the UK, um, leaders who, you know, they know what they're doing, they know what um, uh, the, the problems that their, their communities are facing, they're often living them themselves, and um, they have a, you know, good understanding of, of how those, those challenges should be solved. Um, and so th- those are my thoughts, really, that it's more, it, 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 we, we've got to, surely, you know, if we, if we have a more expansive vision for a more equitable and just world and society and an economy that serves everyone, um, we've got to be working towards a world where philanthropy doesn't exist rather than perpetuating the current system and um, and troubleshooting with um, philanthropy. And that's not to say, you know, that philanthropy hasn't done any good. Of course, philanthropy, um, you know, has, has benefited all, all kinds of causes and people and communities, but we should be working towards a world where philanthropy doesn't exist. And that requires more systemic change rather than um, meeting needs through um, redistributing grants. I, I can I can see exactly what you're saying around those those power dynamics, and I think it's um, it's a refreshing view um, rather than those that have accumulated plenty to hand out. Better that they do than they don't, of course. But yeah, we need to shift the whole way we think about that, and I guess that's where the good ancestor movement comes in. Um, now. Tell me a little bit about the Good Ancestor movement. We've spoken about it in the past, so I've got some ideas on it. But who are you working with and how do you see the work that you're going to be doing with families or charitable foundations? Where where do you see your support is going to to come and what's it going to lead to? Mm. Well, as you said in the introduction, we exist to disrupt the mainstream wealth advisory industry by challenging ideas around excessive wealth accumulation and its legitimacy, and also challenging the idea that, you know, taxation is synonymous, synonymous with, with waste, because um, that's, you know, a narrative that has become quite prevalent in, in the industry. And those two pillars, um, really excessive wealth accumulation and tax minimization are, are the pillars which really uphold the entire industry. Um, and that's, that's not because, people are bad <laughs> it's it's because of the way that the industry has evolved to preserve and um grow wealth and um and actually at a more systemic level you know we've been socialized into an economy which believes in you know the the paradigm or delusion of infinite growth um which just simply isn't sustainable so mm. we're supporting people in a variety of different ways um typically individuals who are um, deemed ultra wealthy, so from the um, tens of millions and upwards in terms of net net worth. Um, They are particularly socially conscious, often very environmentally um, aware and um, 
very focused on operating their philanthropy in line with kind of social justice principles. Um, and uh, through our consulting, we, uh, when we work with individuals, we help them to design kind of alternative wealth plans, uh, for, which enable them to stop accumulating wealth and instead pursue radical redistribution. And so it's, it's really about focusing on um, facilitating change by focusing on an individual's wealth and helping them to stop accumulating and decrease their wealth over time instead of focusing on um, on their philanthropy. Um, so as you can imagine, it's for a, you know, it's a fairly niche market of individuals who are, who are very wealthy and um, concerned about wealth inequality and actually see their role as, um, you know, the, the greatest um, impact they can make is actually to reduce their wealth and to move their wealth out of um, things, uh, you know, investments that are extractive and, and to use them, put them towards regenerating local communities. Mm. Um, so essentially what we're doing is helping individuals and families to create a financial ceiling, you know, sort of yeah. boundary around the, the amount of personal wealth that they're prepared to retain and enjoy throughout their lifetime and helping them to identify what, what's excess wealth in, you know, in their, their life um, and, and helping them to develop a strategy for pursuing meaningful and quite radical redistribution. Um, and in, in kind of working with individuals to ascertain what radical redistribution looks like, we have mm. a set of guiding principles, which are that redistribution, which is radical, has to be both reparative and regenerative. Um, and by reparative, we mean looking at harm that might have been caused um, through the, through the kind of uh, original creation of the wealth and its ongoing accumulation. And that, that could be harm that's incurred by the planet um, or people groups, or certain mm -hmm. communities, um, and using that as a basis for redistribution, um, but also that redistrib redistribution should be uh, regenerative for the planet and should regenerate local economies and communities. Um, fascinating and and it's are you noticing that the conversations that you're having are with um millennials or is, is it with millennials who are inheriting or millennials that have been successful in business themselves and and how do their views differ from perhaps what their their parents generation might have been yes um i i do think there is a there is a bias towards uh, millennials um, in the work that we're doing. And I mean, I, I, I put that largely down to the internet actually and being mm -hmm. digital natives, because I, I don't think that it's not, you know, we, we're definitely talking to current generations that, you know, their parents and even their forties and fifties and, um, you know, with whom this message of, um, stopping accumulating wealth does resonate mm. um, but I think when you've been socialized as a generation and you have you know access to all this information through the internet and you you know I think we we kind of grew up in the time of kind of rapid globalization and being able to connect the dots and understand how the economy works and um, our kind of interdependence globally mm. Um, you, you, I suppose you develop a, a greater understanding of, 
um, you know, how the system actually works. And when we talk about getting financial returns, well, that return has to come from somewhere. And typically that that's, you know, a cost that's being borne by someone somewhere or something. And, Mm. um, and so, so, you know, I, I think, I think there is an energy within the, the, the millennial generation that is, um, you know, very much geared towards thinking about purpose. You know, you might have heard that strapline, purpose is the new currency for the millennial generation. And um, um, obviously the increased awareness of environmental challenges, I think has an enormous amount to to do with the conversation because of, of the links between excessive wealth accumulation and sustainability and, you know, or ecological collapse. So yeah. um, I, I think that's right. And it's, yeah, I mean, I read, we've had this discussion before, but I read Kate Raworth's Donut Economics on holiday a few years ago. And it, it, it was just like a light bulb moment, you know, it, it, what she identified. And I, and I believe that actually she's one of the contributors to um, one of the courses that you're running is, you know, the world is just not big enough to sustain this continued growth, you know, and, and, you know, the work that you're doing, Stephanie, sounds most needed. Um, And, you know, I I applaud you for, you know, calling, calling, starting to call these things out. And um, I really hope that the, the wealth and legal industry are on board. They've certainly got to start to listen, I think. And, you know, it's it's really interesting, as you know, at, at Paradigm Norton, we um, as a as a B corporation, we're subscribed to um, the triple bottom line for people, planet, profit. Um, we're introducing our ESG portfolios, um, and they're all just steps in the right direction. I can't pretend that we're doing anything that's perfect, um, but I think we all just need to start to take notice a whole lot more, don't we? And um, I, yeah, I it's I really look forward to maybe having you back at some point and hearing how how that's going but we wish you all the best with that now I'm going to just change this up just slightly and just ask you a couple of slightly more frivolous questions if I may um I love asking this question Stephanie what has been your best buy under about 30 pound in the last year or so well I'm anyone that knows me well knows that I'm a foodie (laughs) and there's there's almost no limit to what I would spend on good food well maybe maybe there is a limit but um my best buy when I when I I finished work um my legal career I ended at the end of July and so I I was fortunate enough to have August off and when I finished I was absolutely exhausted because of course I've been working my socks off and I, I just on a whim decided to take myself off to lunch at Padella which is uh, in London Bridge and it's just a, a really lovely pasta restaurant. And um, I, I hadn't, you know, it's been, I think it's been around for about four or five years and I've never been able to go because it's one of those places where they don't take reservations and um, the queues are out of control. And I managed to get a spot and I just had the most delightful lunch. And I think it came in at 29 pounds. <laughs> so it was a treat. <laughs> Um, but everything about it was perfect and I it was just it was a beautiful day and you know all my favorite things and it was just so pleasing oh, and I know that restaurant I have never been able to get in then you're absolutely right there's always cues out, out of it that's great and you know food is such a 
such a comfort. I, I another guest that was on um, a, a few months ago spoke about um, a cheeky curry being one of his uh, favourite spends for for thirty pound. And uh, yeah, it it, it's, it it just goes right back to those basics, doesn't it? Those things that like make us smile. Yeah. And um, if you what would be the one thing that you don't currently own that you might like to possess at some point? I would like a roll top bath. Oh, <laughs> because, <laughs> because again, um, my close friends will know that one of my favorite ways to recharge is to have a really nice bath. Mm. And I do love there's something about a roll top bath. It's just so charming and stand on little legs yes exactly <laughs> the ones that you get in really nice hotels yeah sometimes in the bedroom yes yes <laughs> um, um so I think I would like to nice. um to own a roll top bath the challenge mm. will be being able to get a place that has a big enough bathroom for one <laughs> <laughs> brilliant I love it and we always like to leave our guests Steph with a with um some money pearls of wisdom and I think we've all got something that that inspires us around money what would your stephanie money pearl of wisdom be that we can leave our listeners with today well this was something that i suppose is you know for particular context in my life quite recently but i told you about my, my friend a dear friend of mine who on new year's eve told me that uh, in 2019 told me that there were more uh, food banks and branches of McDonald's in the UK, which was horrifying. She also told me that night that according to Dr. Nicholas Nassim Taleb, the three most harmful addictions in life are heroin, carbohydrates and a monthly paycheck. <laughs> and, and I found that incredibly arresting because it's hilarious, but it's also qu quite sobering mm. because um, and obviously, you know, I, I mentioned to it to a friend recently and she said, oh, well, you know, I, I think she's she's freelance and she'd love a monthly paycheck, you know, a regular paycheck. And of course, a regular paycheck is, is an absolute blessing. It's it's great to have regular income and it, it can also be a, a trap and something to be wary of, I think, mm. and in, in different ways. And I think I think why it really spoke to me is is I think what it's saying is don't you know, don't let that money have so much power over you, you know, yeah. and, and that has, you know, as I've gone through my journey of understanding my relationship to wealth, I have always aspired to make money serve me rather than serving money, because I think that's, that's really important um, for, you know, being able to enjoy money as kind of a, a, a passport for freedom and, and choice mm. rather than something that um, is, you know, going to make you feel very bound up and and fearful um and I know I fully appreciate it's you know, I can say that today in a very privileged position but um it's just something that will never leave me actually it, it's it's a it, it's one of those that sat, that you, you kind of have to think about a little bit but when you do you're so right because over the years I've worked with a number of people who are hooked into the level of income that they're getting from whatever their career or profession might be. And equally seeing people stay within jobs because of the pension that is attached to that job and kind of forgetting about living for today and, um, and kind of too much focus on, 
on tomorrow. So I love that. I think that's a really, really philosophical moment to leave us with, Stephanie. And um, it's it's been brilliant talking to you. There's, there's so many areas we could have dove into, but I know time is is limited and I really appreciate you taking time out. Um, once again, all the very best with the Good Ancestor Movement. And um, I look forward to seeing you shaking up the wealth and taxation world and um, looking forward to checking in with you before too long again. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Thanks, Ruth. It's been fab. Bye for now. Bye. Blimey, that was quite thought provoking, wasn't it? I love it when I have guests that say things that cause me to really stop and think, such as Stephanie's views around philanthropy, and that in our world of connectivity, we can see, if we choose to, that all returns are really just a zero-sum game. Someone somewhere pays, and it's not just an unlucky investor. Now, just before you go, I wanted to tell you about our next episode. Incredibly, we're nearly at the end of series one, and so I'm recording a couple of bonus episodes. The next Money Expresso podcast due out in a couple of weeks is going to be the best of series one, Money Pulse of Wisdom. Be sure not to miss it. See you soon. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast to subscribe, rate, and give a five-star review for Money Expresso. Apparently, this helps more people to find the podcast so we can help more people think differently about their money and their life. If you've got any thoughts, comments, or questions on any of the matters discussed, or life and money generally, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Ruth Sturkey. Of course, the conversations with my guests are not intended as advice. My intention is to merely share our guests' money and life experiences to entertain, educate and inform you. Any form of investing involves risk and the value of your investments may go down as well as up. So please do speak with a financial planner before making any investments to make sure they're the right ones for you. Thank you. Mm -hmm.